From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Peace listeners, I'm your host, Olivia Ashe, and today we are diving into the second episode of a three-part series focusing on women in the law. I had the privilege of catching up with Jackie Patterson, the former senior director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. We recorded this episode last spring while she was in the Gulf Coast, Mississippi, celebrating their Solar for All project, but it's still pertinent today. Jackie remains a force and a leader in the climate justice arena, and although we had a bit of trouble with our audio during our conversation, her commitment and vision for the climate justice movement are loud and clear. Let's hear from our guest. One of the things I'm most curious about is just how did you arrive at this work of pursuing climate justice? Where did it all begin for you? Yeah, so my first, my first thing that I, that I did was uh, special education. I really wanted to be a school teacher. And so I studied regular education and special education. I had kind of a dual degree as a bachelor's. And and soon after soon after getting my 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 degrees, I went into Peace Corps um, in Jamaica. And a couple of things happened while I was there. One, I ended up with a secondary project working in communities where their water supply was contaminated by shell oil. And it was the kind of typical David and Goliath situation where the community was trying to fight for justice, but there was very little in the way of law to hold these corporations accountable. And so they ended up with like uh, some donated, ventilated, improved pit latrines in their communities, what they called the IP latrines, and like a little grant for um, like a three hours program in the school like literally nothing for the fact that they were poisoned <laughs> by shell oil. And so and so that was really the beginning of beginning to understand kind of the power of the socialocracy, you know, and, and really what it means in terms of community. And then at the same time I was working doing special education and I ended up teaching sign language to a group of moms and their kids because there had been a rubella outbreak and i guess if you have rubella and you're pregnant then the likelihood of you having a child with a hearing impairment is very very strong and so knowing that at home you know you just get the mmr vaccination just as a matter of course and yet that was something that they didn't have there but yet you know you would go because i'm jamaican like Dad was Jamaica, so Jamaican, and so I would go to Jamaica and be in the tourist areas, and then even when I was living there, going to the tourist areas, and just like the extremes of the wealth that were coming into the country on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, and how it just didn't reach beyond those borders, you know, and um, it it really just enriched a very wealthy few, a largely white few, in terms of uh, these big resorts. And so between that, the, the situation with the Harborview community, 
that kind of observing that situation with and then also I started a book club and we read books like How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and The Invisible Man and The Boots Who Sat by the Door, like all these things, like really looking at the system. And we watched the Life and Debt, which is about IMF policies and its impact on Jamaica. And so that was the beginning of kind of, you know, the the the, the very seeds of like my politicization, you know, as a as a as a person, as a professional. And so, and interestingly enough, my kind of love of reggae music, which has left from there until now, and it's kind of deep lessons in, you know, in revolution. Um, I, I, people talk about whether, whether music influences people or whether people, you know, and I think it's really definitely both ways. So there was, there's an education to me, even just like the whole reggae movement and, and so forth. So all of that, I was supposed to be getting. Kind of fast forwarding from there, I went into doing um, international public health work, and then it was international human rights work, and this was specific focus on gender justice, and, um, and, and doing a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, a little bit in, in Asia. But doing that work and looking at issues from macroeconomic policies, from food security, and then also looking at climate change and how it interacts with gender justice. All of that continued with my education. Um, and I should back up for a minute and say before that I was in between Peace Corps and doing international human rights work, I was working with an organization called IMA World Health that was doing work on public health again in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I was working, I was the infectious disease, like the VP of infectious disease and something like that. And um, and in doing that work, particularly around AIDS, it was in the height of the AIDS crisis. And being in being in a place like Zimbabwe, where they did not have enough room in the cemetery to bury all the people that were dying, they had to bury people at twelve feet and then at six feet so that they could stack. And so this. And then being in hospitals where it was the same thing. They did not have enough hospital beds. And so they had mats on the floor underneath the bed and then and then a person sleeping on the bed. And so being there and then also dealing with the pharmaceutical industry, which cared more about intellectual property and the profit that they would reap from protecting their intellectual property then about the fact that people were dying by the millions. Um, then just seeing that these were black folks who were dying by the by the millions while these companies which literally, you know, I mean it was just a very definition of profits before people, um, with just fatal impact. And so and, and even then it was I was reading also like and their graves are not yet full the myth of development, um, lethal aid, and all the ways that even the development, like what was supposed to be these development organizations, um, because they were funded by these federal federal governments that were, again, the corporatocracy. So we had the United States government that was insisting that all the drugs that were bought for AIDS were bought from branded pharmaceuticals which in some cases cost like 
thousand percent more for branded antiretroviral drugs. And so literally the corporatocracy was killing people. So all of that, you know, uh, <laughs> taking a beat. All of that uh, led me to where I am today and really feeling feeling deeply that the work is in systems change, not in just kind of putting a band-aid on or even a reformist agenda. We really do need revolution. From Jamaica to Zimbabwe to working in an infectious disease, all of these things have kind of laid the foundation for you to be in this climate justice work. Because to be quite honest, um, there aren't many women of color that are at the forefront of climate justice work, at least that we see. It feels very taboo in the Black community still sometimes when I'm when people are like, what kind of law do you want to go into? And I'm like, climate, I think I want to do international environmental law, environmental law. And people are like, mm, yeah, that sounds nice. I'm like, what do you, that sounds nice. That's the work. So how has it been for you, I guess, kind of breaking that barrier and inviting the Black community at the NAACP into the climate justice arena? Yeah, no, I thank you for that. When I first started doing the work, I was really kind of in a listening. Like when I first started the program back in 2009, I wanted to hear from folks because I had that same sense that you just described. Like people were like, yeah, great about the polar bears and the ice caps. But, you know, and so, so in the beginning, like we had, we would have these big, over the, what the NAACP calls CRTIs, the Civil Rights Advocacy Training Institute. And so that means like the health program, the education program, each of us had their own kind of training track with an institute. And ours was called Climate Justice 101. And the first one that I did, I remember, I think it was in Oklahoma, just for the whole region. And um, people kind of came to the session and listened and so forth. And at the end, this person walked up to me and they're like, okay, that was really interesting. They really re resonated with what I'm experiencing. But I got to tell you, when I thought Climate Justice 101, I thought this was going to be about the climate of injustice in the world. Like literally the world climate, it didn't even compute that it could be part of our civil rights advocacy agenda. Um, and similarly, when I was in... Um, we did another another place, and someone walked up to me, literally the same thing. Like, that was really awesome. Like, like this happens in my community, and I totally different. But I have to tell you, when I saw Climate Justice 101, I thought it was going to be about the climate of workplace discrimination. Like, literally, people were just trying to put in a frame that made sense within our civil rights agenda. And the notion of talking about environment wasn't even in the offering. And so... And then similarly, I'll just say the last, I did, we had these these religious leaders meetings. And so, but like people couldn't choose what session they went to. And so when this group of religious leaders had to come to our session, you could tell they were just like, you know, I can't believe I got the, you know, the wrong draw, the, <laughs> draw the roll of the dice or whatever. So I guess they wouldn't have thought roll of the dice, but whatever. <laughs> the, the lump of coal in their trick or treat bag. But anyway, um, so they came in and they were like, you know, yeah, whatever. And so I started playing, like I played Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. I played um, Michael Jackson's Earth Song. 
And then we really just started talk, talk, started telling stories, like stories of what was happening. And um, and this one person said, you know, I'm, I feel ashamed that that Michael Jackson was more prophetic than I am. And that was really deep. Um, and then others were really saying similar, like this really expressing shame that they weren't there for for the people in terms of not seeing this as an issue of employ in terms of environmental justice. And and since then some of those folks have gone on to be like leaders and um like this one person is now a leader within the interface moral action on climate and and others are, are doing um different work work of leadership and so that's kind of like those were the early years and now we have like hundreds of branches and chapters that have environmental climate justice committees because some of them were like we've been out here toiling in the vineyard waiting for the uh, national office to to support this work thank you And, and others are like I didn't even know this was happening in my backyard thank you for providing the tools to be able to do work on this and and there are a lot of folks in between and so but then we still get like wow why is it so stuck on this or you know but 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 definitely it's come a long long way yeah that's an interesting reflection for someone or for people to express shame for not showing up for this movement when i mean black folks were included or thought about when the climate justice movement really took off and we've been removed from the land and um, been enslaved on the land and had to work in in ways that were soul and body crushing on the land. So there's a lot going on there to like feel that shame, but also know that colonization had a big part of the reason as to why we're not connected to the land and the environment in the ways our ancestors were. How have you seen community really lean into or kind of take initiative of climate justice in their community? And I guess what's kind of been inspiring um, you to continue this work? Because it's difficult. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was everything from, like right now I'm in Gulfport, Mississippi, in, um, and I'm in a hotel where the, the where, the, when I was checking in, the person was telling me that they had $4 million in damage from this hotel alone from Hurricane Zeta that came by recently. But I'm here because our the Environmental and Climate Justice Chair of the National Board of Directors lives here. Her name is Kathy Eglin. And she had a solar, solar installation done on Tuesday. And it's the first solar installation of this Solar for All Mississippi project that was launched at the, on that day. And we, because this was kind of, Kathy, since we met her, um, so we came into contact because, long story short, um, (laughs) I'll try to make it as short as possible, but when I was, when I first started, uh, one of the first things that I did, I had been planning before I even joined the NAACP on staff to go to the UN um, climate meeting that happens every year. So it was in Copenhagen. And I had, before I joined the NAACP, had gotten this grant to go around the country um, doing this, what I call the Women of Color for Climate Justice Road Tour, where I was interviewing women working for intersectional climate and, and um, gender, even if they weren't doing it explicitly. They were just doing work on disaster or on food justice or whatever, but it was just making an intersection. So anyway, long story short, I went to that UN climate talk and I 
did like video interviews. I did every day. I did a vlog, a video interview, and a blog, and I posted it. And and um, and because I just joined NAACP, they posted it. And so Kathy was just a board member, and she just started following it. And so she and her sister had worked for the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality. So she had some kind of understanding for her sister on environmental issues, but she wasn't really active, active on it. Anyway, long story short, fast forward, since she, since she got interested, then she became the chair of our committee. No one else was really. And so since then, she's done a lot of work on environment over the years. And so, and, and like both as a community level and um, personally, and, and in terms of her household. So when she decided to go solar, because she had done that on top of having her roof fortified from disaster and all these other things, we decided to put together this Climate Smart Household Award for her um, to really uplift the fact that she is living this life, both in terms of everything from one solar to having her roof fortified against disasters, to having this community, a community garden as well as a personal household garden, to like now having a reducitarian diet and all these different things. And so, like, to the answer to your question, to be able to see Gulfport, because she was the president of the Gulfport branch, and then her good friend and colleague, Ruth Story, was the president of Gulfport branch. And since we've met, they've done so much at the Gulfport level around environmental and climate justice. Um, and then she's done so much personally, like, she embodies the path that we're trying to, to get everyone to go on and, and to walk, by, walk with everyone and, and support their leadership in. And this is really why I do this work. I guess that's a long story to get to that end. That's, that's a beautiful story. And it really makes it personal. It's like, it's the individuals and communities on the ground who continue to strive and put in the work and have vision, despite often being left out of policies that actually offer recovery after disaster, even prepare people before disaster. If we don't do it for ourselves, it's for the Black community it doesn't seem like there's many folks who are looking out for us on the outside, which kind of takes me to my next question around, as a Black community, um, what are some of the things that we can be thinking about policy-wise that we need to be demanding um, of our senators and mayors and um, aldermen, uh, they're called in Chicago? But yeah, so for one thing, I mean, just speaking of Chicago, right there on the south side of Chicago, Rose Joshua is the president of the south side branch. And she does this awesome work um, on on uh, on really putting her community um, community leadership around everything from flood management to growing their own food to doing a solar array uh, to to job creation for youth and we know that's critically important in a time when there's so few opportunities really and so putting together kind of comprehensive planning that moves our communities to have all of our, our basic needs met in terms of the commons, whether it's energy, food, um, having a livelihood, and so forth. And so that, for us, that's kind of the, the important part of this is remembering the intersectionality. And, and as we think about um, programmatic planning, that we recognize that everything is connected to everything else. And that um, that anything that we do, whether we're creating clean energy as opposed to the dirty energy, like that's in Chicago, for example, the Fisk and Crawford and State Line plants were all kind of, you know, 
creating a ring of toxicity around Chicago in terms of the ways that energy was being generated through those coal-fired power plants. And so by shifting to clean energy, we're, we're creating jobs for our communities and we're also eliminating this toxic toxicity for our air that's causing our kids to be through the problems coming from the life we into the hospital from an asthma attack and two or three times in life they die in asthma attack. And so whether it's larger um, um, changes that we need to make, like shifting our entire energy system, the one that's rooted in clean energy and energy efficiency, smaller kind of steps that we can take, whether it's growing a personal garden or being involved in a, in a community garden, um, making sure that we have uh, re recycling um, ordinances and recycling pickup in our communities because it's those landfills and incinerators that end up in our communities again attacking our lungs and making us more vulnerable to things like COVID-19. Um, looking at how our housing, because we again pay more of our electricity toward, uh, more of our income towards electricity because our houses are energy inefficient. And we're also more likely to have damage to our homes because of poor housing stock because our homes aren't disaster resilient. So we're really pushing for better building codes and better infrastructure um, funding so that we can have houses that are sustainable um, for our for ourselves and for our, for our environment. Um, those are just a few examples, but if people can do everything from just writing an op-ed, writing a uh, sending a tweet, retweeting something. Something bigger like holding a community, um, holding a, a, a film screening, watching one of the many films to talk about these issues. So just even getting people started to talk about these is the beginning of the path to education. Not to mention doing the bigger things like having a community-owned solar array, a community garden, um, having uh, thinking about making sure that we're that we're voting in every election that we understand exactly what's happening, not just the congressional. Uh, or even mayoral or even city council candidates with down-ballot initiatives, or whether, like you said, aldermen, or whether it's like the, that, that ordinance, that local ordinance that could be critical for our lives, if it's a local ordinance on clean air, or a local ordinance on electrification, um, and so forth. So we have, and I'll, I'll just say too, I invite people to kind of Google NAACP 20 things you can do to advance a sustainable planet. So it's out there specifically to give people some concrete steps that they can do big and small. Excellent. Excellent. I feel like everything you mentioned kind of takes us back to the first part of the conversation. We're like, it's a system that we need to engage when we're talking about climate justice. It's not just about the polar bears or the ice caps, but it is jobs and housing and food security and all of those things are part of the climate justice movement, which often get left out when we when it, there is an actual an actual lens or someone who's bringing a lens of race and racism to the conversation, we can forget about we forget about some of the intersections of climate justice. But yeah, that's a, exactly exactly those solutions you named speak exactly to that very point. And I guess now I'm curious um, too, since we've kind of talked about Jamaica and Zimbabwe, um, any ways that you see. Uh, I don't know, kind of bridging the gap of the diaspora um, and thinking internationally, even within the Black community in particular. Yeah, thank you. So in 2018, we signed a memorandum of understanding with the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance after having worked with them from that time that I was in Copenhagen in 2009. I connected with with PACTA, as it's called. And I remember I did a video of them as part of that vlog. I talked about marching down the hallways, chanting two degrees of suicide. 
really talking about the ways that low ambition in these U.S. climate conversations is what's resulting in really genocide for for um, for Afro-descendant nations and communities. And over the years, us coming together, they've learned a lot about, like the Pan-African just learned, learned a lot about the experience of Black America. And they talked about, again, one person with shame saying that, you know, we watch TV, we, you know, we see that we call America just kind of this monolith. And now we see like our brothers and sisters within America and what the experiences are and how, how closely tied these experiences are. And at the same time, on our side, it's been um, an education around how we have to have, we have to link our global policies with our local policies, because if we if we're getting coal burning out of our communities, we have to be just as caring and concerned and including our advocacy agenda, um, fighting against coal exports, because we can then get coal out of our communities and then they just put it on a ship and ship it over and somebody else is getting that asthma. Someone else has a mortality. Similarly with, um, with uh, natural gas, as we fight against natural gas um, infrastructure here, then we have this uptick in LNG liquefied natural gas exports. So how do we make sure that our policies are very linked? As we talk about food policies, we, we, there's the farm bill, and then there's kind of the international international related aspects of that. It's our trade policies. I mean, it's our trade policies that meant that um, that we have places in Africa where where um, there's more gold mines. There's all the gold mines in Africa, and the vast majority of them are owned by people, you know, above the equator. You know, but you have there's more Malawian nurses in the UK than there are in Malawi. So we and, and this is you know we have trade policies that are set up to say like myself if I if, if I you know if I, if I lived in Zambia then the copper that is that comes out of those copper mines that again the copper mining is so toxic for people who are doing it but they're not allowed to then create to make whatever it is you can make copper they're only allowed to export the raw resource because it's only allowed to be manufactured in some place else because of these trade policies so we really as a, as afro-descendant folks across the country and across the world are, are, are bound by by the experience of extractivism, exploitation, domination, and so forth. And I'll just end by saying, too, on the same similar note, I was watching CNN and seeing how they were talking about how places like the U.S. and Canada had procured five times, Canada in particular at that time, had procured five times the amount of vaccine as they needed for their country. But yet, even though they did vaccine trials in Sub-Saharan Africa, at that moment, there hadn't been one dose issued in Nigeria. And so these are the kind of things, that kind of relationship in terms of extraction, exploitation, domination, is something that is, you know, the, the one thing that's in common that's being brought on Black folks. I feel like that could be a whole other podcast, just thinking about our consumption as a Black community and how we change that and really demand um, from all angles what it is that we want because our liberation is connected and as our time ends here i just have one final question um what do you imagine if you could imagine anything a beautiful black thriving community what does that look like and what are uh, one or two ways um that we might get there yeah thank you 
Yeah, so I imagine, I imagine a time when we are all living in and embracing the abundance that is this earth. I mean, it was divinely designed and with regenerative principles and processes and systems. And we, I imagine us getting back to being in harmony and resonance with the regenerative uh, cycles of nature that literally are, are designed to be able to provide us with everything we need to, to not just survive but to thrive and that's that's absolutely what i imagine and i imagine us and i and the steps that we need to take to get there are are really eliminating this corporatocracy that is taking us away from um, living in harmony with the earth because it's all about concentrating profits in the hand of the wealthy few so getting money out of politics for a, to answer your question, is a key step so that we actually, because we know what we want, we know what we need as frontline communities. And if we were able to, to have a, a governance structure that is really for the people, by the people, then we can get there. We can really get to that place of, uh, of abundance and of thriving and of happiness and liberation of people. I want that too. That's exactly what I imagine. Yeah, it's just getting in a right relationship with the earth and let that cycle allow us to get in right relationship with each other. That's all from us here at the Podvocate. Thanks again for joining me today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. And visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are myself, Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Jossen. Special thanks to Professor John Dean for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.